Section 7 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4. The Doctrine of Degeneration, the Ancients and Moderns. Outside the circle of systematic thinkers, the prevalent theory of degeneration was being challenged early in the 17th century. The challenge led to a literary war which was waged for about a hundred years in France and England over the comparative merits of the ancients and the moderns. It was in the matter of literature, and especially poetry, that the quarrel was most acrimonious, and that the interest of the public was most keenly aroused, but the ablest disputants extended the debate to the general field of knowledge. The quarrel of the ancients and moderns used commonly to be dismissed as a curious and rather ridiculous episode in the history of literature. Footnote. The best and fullest work on the subject is Rigaud's Histoire de la Querelle des Anciens et des Modernes, 1856. End of footnote. Auguste Comte was, I think, one of the first to call attention to some of its wider bearings. The quarrel, indeed, has considerable significance in the history of ideas. It was part of the rebellion against the intellectual yoke of the Renaissance. The cause of the moderns, who were the aggressors, represented the liberation of criticism from the authority of the dead, and, notwithstanding the perversities of taste of which they were guilty, their polemic, even on the purely literary side, was distinctly important, as M. Brutonnier has convincingly shown in the development of French criticism. Footnote. See his L'évolution des genres dans l'histoire de la littérature. End of footnote. But the form in which the critical questions were raised forced the debate to touch upon a problem of greater moment. The question, can the men of today contend on equal terms with the illustrious ancients, or are they intellectually inferior, implied the larger issue, has nature exhausted her powers? Is she no longer capable of producing men equal in brains and vigor to those whom she once produced? Is humanity played out, or are her forces permanent and inexhaustible? The assertion of the permanence of the powers of nature by the champions of the moderns was the direct contradiction of the theory of degeneration, and they undoubtedly contributed much towards bringing that theory into discredit. When we grasp this, it will not be surprising to find that the first clear assertions of a doctrine of progress in knowledge were provoked by the controversy about the ancients and moderns. 1. Although the great scene of the controversy was France, the question had been expressly raised by an Italian, no less a person than Alessandro Tassoni, the accomplished author of that famous ironical poem, La Secchia Rapita, which caricatured the epic poets of his day. He was bent on exposing the prejudices of his time, and uttering new doctrine, and he created great scandal in Italy by his attacks on Petrarch, as well as on Homer and Aristotle. The earliest comparison of the merits of the ancients and the moderns will be found in a volume of miscellaneous thoughts, which he published in 1620. Footnote. The Aci Libri di Pensieri Diversi. Carpi, 1620. The first nine books had appeared in 1612. The tenth contains the comparison. Rigaud was the first to connect this work with the history of the controversy. End of footnote. He speaks of the question as a matter of current dispute, on which he proposes to give an impartial decision by instituting a comprehensive comparison in all fields, theoretical, imaginative, and practical. Footnote. It was incidental to the controversy which arose over the merits of Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered. That the subject had been discussed long before may be inferred from a remark of Estienne in his Apology for Herodotus, that while some of his contemporaries carry their admiration of antiquity to the point of superstition, others depreciate and trample it underfoot. End of footnote. 
he begins by criticizing the a priori argument that as arts are brought to perfection by experience and long labor the modern age must necessarily have the advantage this reasoning he says is unsound because the same arts and studies are not always uninterruptedly pursued by the most powerful intellects but pass into inferior hands and so decline or are even extinguished as was the case in italy in the decrepitude of the roman empire when for many centuries the arts fell below mediocrity or to phrase it otherwise the argument would be admissible only if there were no breaches of continuity footnote tassoni argues that a decline in all pursuits is inevitable when a certain point of excellence has been reached quoting Valeus paterculus one seventeen difficilisque in perfecto mora est naturali turque quod procedere non potest recedit End of footnote. in drawing his comparison tassoni seeks to make good his claim that he is not an advocate but while he awards superiority here and there to the ancients the moderns on the whole have much the best of it he takes a wide enough survey including the material side of civilization even costume in contrast with some of the later controversialists who narrowed the field of debate to literature and art tassoni's thoughts were translated into french and the book was probably known to bois robert a dramatist who is chiefly remembered for the part he took in founding the académie française he delivered a discourse before that body immediately after its institution february twenty sixth sixteen thirty five in which he made a violent and apparently scurrilous attack on homer this discourse kindled the controversy in france and even struck a characteristic note homer already severely handled by tassoni was to be the special target for the arrows of the moderns who felt that if they could succeed in discrediting him their cause would be won thus the gauntlet was flung and it is important to note this before the appearance of the discourse of method sixteen thirty seven but the influence of descartes made itself felt throughout the controversy and the most prominent moderns were men who had assimilated cartesian ideas this seems to be true even of desmarais de saint sorlin who a good many years after the discourse of bois robert opened the campaign saint sorlin had become a fanatical christian that was one reason for hating the ancients he was also like bois robert a bad poet that was another his thesis was that the history of christianity offered subjects far more inspiring to a poet than those which had been treated by homer and sophocles and that christian poetry must bear off the palm from pagan his own clovis and mary magdalene or the triumph of grace were the demonstration of homer's defeat few have ever heard of these productions how many have read them curiously about the same time an epic was being composed in england which might have given to the foolish contentions of saint sorlin some illusory plausibility but the literary dispute does not concern us here what does concern us is that saint sorlin was aware of the wider aspects of the question though he was not seriously interested in them antiquity he says was not so happy or so learned or so rich or so stately as the modern age which is really the mature old age and as it were the autumn of the world possessing the fruits and the spoils of all the past centuries with the power to judge of the inventions experiences and errors of predecessors and to profit by all that the ancient world was a spring which had only a few flowers nature indeed in all ages produces perfect works but it is not so with the creations of man which require correction and the men who live latest must excel in happiness and knowledge here we have both the assertion of the permanence of the forces of nature and the idea already expressed by bacon and others that the modern age has advantages over antiquity comparable to those of old age over childhood two 
how seriously the question between the moderns and the ancients on whose behalf boileau had come forward and crossed swords with saint sorlin was taken is shown by the fact that saint sorlin before his death solemnly bequeathed the championship of the moderns to a younger man charles perrault we shall see how he fulfilled the trust it is illustrated too by a book which appeared in the seventies les entretiens d'ariste et eugène by bouhour a mundane and popular jesuit father in one of these dialogues the question is raised but with a curious caution and evasiveness which suggests that the author was afraid to commit himself he did not wish to make enemies footnote rigaud notes that he makes one contribution to the subject the idea that the torch of civilization has passed from country to country in different ages for example from greece to rome and recently from italy to france in the last century the italians were first in doctrine and politesse the present century is for france what the last was for italy Quote, we have all the esprit and all the science all other countries are barbarous in comparison Close quote. but as we shall see he had been anticipated by hakewill whose work was unknown to rigaud End of footnote. the general atmosphere in france in the reign of louis XIV was propitious to the cause of the moderns men felt that it was a great age comparable to the age of augustus and few would have preferred to have lived at any other time their literary artists corneille and then racine and moliere appealed so strongly to their taste that they could not assign to them any rank but the first they were impatient of the claims to unattainable excellence advanced for the greeks and romans the ancients said moliere are the ancients we are the people of to-day this might be the motto of descartes and it probably expressed a very general feeling it was in 1687 that Charles Perrault, who is better remembered for his collection of fairy tales than for the leading role which he played in this controversy, published his poem on The Age of Louis the Great. The enlightenment of the present age surpasses that of antiquity. This is the theme. La docte antiquité dans toute sa durée à l'égal de nos jours ne fut point éclairée. Perrault adopts a more polite attitude to La Belle Antiquité than Saint-Sorlin, but his criticism is more insidious greek and roman men of genius he suggests were all very well in their own times and might be considered divine by our ancestors but nowadays plato is rather tiresome and the inimitable homer would have written a much better epic if he had lived in the reign of louis the great the important passage however in the poem is that in which the permanent power of nature to produce men of equal talent in every age is affirmed a former les esprits comme a former les corps la nature en tout temps fait les mêmes efforts son être est immuable et cette force assez dont elle produit tout ne s'est point épuisée de cette même main les forces infinies produisent en tout temps de semblables génies the age of louis the great was a brief declaration of faith perrault followed it up by a comprehensive work his comparison of the ancients and the moderns parallèle des anciens et des modernes which appeared in four parts during the following years sixteen eighty eight to sixteen ninety six art eloquence poetry the sciences and their practical applications are all discussed at length and the discussion is thrown into the form of conversations between an enthusiastic champion of the modern age who conducts the debate and a devotee of antiquity who finds it difficult not to admit the arguments of his opponent yet obstinately persists in his own views perrault bases his thesis on those general considerations which we have met incidentally in earlier writers and which were now almost commonplaces among those who paid any attention to the matter knowledge advances with time and experience perfection is not necessarily associated with antiquity 
the latest comers have inherited from their predecessors and added new acquisitions of their own. But Perrault has thought out the subject methodically, and he draws conclusions which have only to be extended to amount to a definite theory of the progress of knowledge. A particular difficulty had done much to hinder a general admission of progressive improvement in the past. The proposition that the posterior is better and the late comers have the advantage seemed to be incompatible with an obvious historical fact. We are superior to the men of the Dark Ages in knowledge and arts, granted. But will you say that the men of the tenth century were superior to the Greeks and Romans? To this question, on which Tassoni had already touched, Perrault replies, certainly not. There are breaches of continuity. The sciences and arts are like rivers, which flow for part of their course underground, and then, finding an opening, spring forth as abundant as when they plunged beneath the earth. Long wars, for instance, may force peoples to neglect studies and throw all their vigor into the more urgent needs of self-preservation. A period of ignorance may ensue, but with peace and felicity, knowledge and inventions will begin again and make further advances. It is to be observed that he does not claim any superiority in talents or brain power from the moderns. On the contrary, he takes his stand on the principle which he had asserted in the age of Louis the Great, that nature is immutable. She still produces as great men as ever, but she does not produce greater. The lions of the deserts of Africa in our days do not differ in fierceness from those of the days of Alexander the Great, and the best men of all times are equal in vigor. It is their work and productions that are unequal, and, given equally favorable conditions, the latest must be the best. For science and the arts depend upon the accumulation of knowledge, and knowledge necessarily increases as time goes on. But could this argument be applied to poetry and literary art, the field of battle in which the belligerents, including Perrault himself, were most deeply interested? It might prove that the modern age was capable of producing poets and men of letters no less excellent than the ancient masters, but did it prove that their works must be superior? The objection did not escape Perrault, and he answers it ingeniously. It is the function of poetry and eloquence to please the human heart, and in order to please it we must know it. Is it easier to penetrate the secrets of the human heart than the secrets of nature, or will it take less time? We are always making new discoveries about its passions and desires. To take only the tragedies of Corneille, you will find there finer and more delicate reflections on ambition, vengeance, and jealousy than in all the books of antiquity. At the close of his parallel, however, Perrault, while he declares the general superiority of the moderns, makes a reservation in regard to poetry and eloquence for the sake of peace. The discussion of Perrault falls far short of embodying a full idea of progress. Not only is he exclusively concerned with progress in knowledge, though he implies, indeed, without developing the doctrine that happiness depends on knowledge, but he has no eyes for the future and no interest in it. He is so impressed with the advance of knowledge in the recent past that he is almost incapable of imagining further progression. Read the journals of France and England, he says, quote, and glance at the publications of the academies of these great kingdoms, and you will be convinced that within the last twenty or thirty years more discoveries have been made in natural science than throughout the period of learned antiquity. I own that I consider myself fortunate to know the happiness we enjoy. It is a great pleasure to survey all the past ages in which I can see the birth and the progress of all things, but nothing which has not received a new increase and luster in our own times. Our age has, in some sort, arrived at the summit of perfection. And since for some years the rate of the progress is much slower and appears almost insensible, as the days seem to cease lengthening when the solstice is near, it is pleasant to think that probably there are not many things for which we need envy future generations.
close quote. Indifference to the future, or even a certain skepticism about it, is the note of this passage, and accords with the view that the world has reached its old age. The idea of the progress of knowledge, which Perrault expounds, is still incomplete. 3. Independently of this development in France, the doctrine of degeneration had been attacked, and the comparison of the ancients with the moderns incidentally raised, in England. A divine named George Hakewill published in 1627 a folio of 600 pages to confute the common error touching nature's perpetual and universal decay. Footnote. An apology or declaration of the power and providence of God in the government of the world, consisting in an examination and censure of the common error, etc., 1627, 1630, 1635. End of footnote. He and his pedantic book, which breathes the atmosphere of the 16th century, are completely forgotten, and though it ran to three editions, it can hardly have attracted the attention of many except theologians. The writer's object is to prove that the power and providence of God in the government of the world are not consistent with the current view that the physical universe, the heavens and the elements, are undergoing a process of decay, and that man is degenerating physically, mentally, and morally. His arguments in general are futile as well as tedious. But he has profited by reading Baudin and Bacon, whose ideas, it would appear, were already agitating theological minds. A comparison between the ancients and the moderns arises in a general refutation of the doctrine of decay, as naturally as the question of the stability of the powers of nature arises in a comparison between the ancients and moderns. Hakewill protests against excessive admiration of antiquity just because it encourages the opinion of the world's decay. He gives his argument a much wider scope than the French controversialists. For him, the field of debate includes not only science, arts, and literature, but physical qualities and morals. He seeks to show that mentally and physically there has been no decay, and that the morals of modern Christendom are immensely superior to those of pagan times. There has been social progress due to Christianity, and there has been an advance in arts and knowledge. Multa dies uariusque labor mutabilis aevi retulit in melius. Hakewill, like Tassoni, surveys all the arts and sciences, and concludes that the moderns are equal to the ancients in poetry, and in almost all other things excel them. One of the arguments which he urges against the theory of degeneration is pragmatic, its paralyzing effect on human energy. Quote, the opinion of the world's universal decay quails the hopes and blunts the edge of men's endeavors, Close quote. and the effort to improve the world, he implies, is a duty we owe to posterity. Quote, let not then the vain shadows of the world's fatal decay keep us either from looking backward to the imitation of our noble predecessors, or forward in providing for posterity. But as our predecessors worthily provided for us, so let our posterity bless us in providing for them, it being still as uncertain to us what generations are still to ensue as it was to our predecessors in their ages. We note the suggestion that history may be conceived as a sequence of improvements in civilization, but we note also that Hakewill here is faced by the obstacle which Christian theology offered to the logical expansion of the idea. It is uncertain what generations are still to ensue. Roger Bacon stood before the same dead wall. Hakewill thinks that he is living in the last age of the world, but how long it shall last is a question which cannot be resolved, quote, it being one of those secrets which the Almighty hath locked up in the cabinet of his own counsel, close quote. Yet he consoles himself and his readers with a consideration which suggests that the end is not yet very near. Quote, it is agreed upon all sides by divines that at least two signs forerunning the world's end remain unaccomplished, 
the subversion of rome and the conversion of the jews and when they shall be accomplished god only knows as yet in man's judgment there being little appearance of the one or the other it was well to be assured that nature is not decaying or man degenerating but was the doctrine that the end of the world does not depend upon the law of nature and that the growth of human civilization may be cut off at any moment by a fiat of the deity less calculated to quail the hopes and blunt the edge of men's endeavors Hakewill asserted with confidence that the universe will be suddenly wrecked by fire una dies dabit exitio was the prospect of an arrest which might come the day after tomorrow likely to induce men to exert themselves to make provision for posterity the significance of Hakewill lies in the fact that he made the current theory of degeneration which stood in the way of all possible theories of progress the object of a special inquiry and his book illustrates the close connection between that theory and the dispute over the ancients and moderns it cannot be said that he has added anything valuable to what may be found in Baudin and Bacon on the development of civilization. The general synthesis of history which he attempts is equivalent to theirs. He describes the history of knowledge and arts, and all things besides, as exhibiting a kind of circular progress, by which he means that they have a birth, growth, flourishing, failing, and fading, and then within a while after a resurrection and reflourishing. In this method of progress, the lamp of learning passed from one people to another. It passed from the Orientals, Chaldeans and Egyptians, to the Greeks. When it was nearly extinguished in Greece, it began to shine afresh among the Romans. And having been put out by the barbarians for the space of a thousand years, it was relit by Petrarch and his contemporaries. In stating this view of circular progress, Hakewill comes perilously near to the doctrine of recourse or returns, which had been severely denounced by Bacon. In one point, indeed, Hakewill goes far beyond Baudin. It was suggested, as we saw, by the French thinker, that in some respects the modern age is superior in conduct and morals to antiquity, but he said little on the matter. Hakewill develops the suggestion at great length into a severe and partial impeachment of ancient manners and morals. Unjust and unconvincing though his arguments are, and inspired by theological motives, his thesis nevertheless deserves to be noted as an assertion of the progress of man in social morality. Bacon and the thinkers of the seventeenth century generally confined their views of progress in the past to the intellectual field. Hakewill, though he overshot the mark and said nothing actually worth remembering, nevertheless anticipated the larger problem of social progress which was to come to the front in the eighteenth century. 4. During the forty years that followed the appearance of Hakewill's book, much had happened in the world of ideas and when we take up glanville's plus ultra or the progress and advancement of knowledge since the days of aristotle we breathe a different atmosphere footnote the title is evidently suggested by a passage in bacon quoted above page fifty five and a footnote it was published in sixteen sixty eight and its purpose was to defend the recently founded royal society which was attacked on the ground that it was inimical to the interests of religion and sound learning for the Aristotelian tradition was still strongly entrenched in the English church and universities, notwithstanding the influence of Bacon, and the Royal Society, which realized the romantic model of Bacon's Society of Experimenters, repudiated the scholastic principles and methods associated with Aristotle's name. Glanville was one of those latitudinarian clergymen, so common in the Anglican church in the seventeenth century, who were convinced that religious faith must accord with reason, and were unwilling to abate in its favor any of reason's claims. He was under the influence of Bacon, Descartes, and the Cambridge Platonists, and no one was more enthusiastic than he in following the new scientific discoveries of his time. 
Unfortunately for his reputation, he had a weak side. Enlightened though he was, he was a firm believer in witchcraft, and he is chiefly remembered not as an admirer of Descartes and Bacon and a champion of the Royal Society, but as the author of Sadducismus Triumphatus, a monument of superstition which probably contributed to check the gradual growth of disbelief in witches and apparitions. His Plus Ultra is a review of modern improvements of useful knowledge. It is confined to mathematics and science, in accordance with its purpose of justifying the Royal Society, and the discoveries of the past sixty years enable the author to present a far more imposing picture of modern scientific progress than was possible for Baudin or Bacon. Footnote. Bacon, indeed, could have made out a more impressive picture of the new age if he had studied mathematics and taken the pains to master the evidence which was revolutionizing astronomy. Glanville had the advantage of comprehending the importance of mathematics for the advance of physical science. End of footnote. He had absorbed Bacon's doctrine of utility. His spirit is displayed in the remark that more gratitude is due to the unknown inventor of the mariner's compass, quote, than to a thousand Alexanders and Caesars, or to ten times the number of Aristotles. And he really did more for the increase of knowledge and the advantage of the world by this one experiment than the numerous subtle disputers that have lived ever since the erection of the school of talking. Close quote. Glanville, however, in his complacency with what has already been accomplished, is not misled into overestimating its importance. He knows that it is indeed little compared with the ideal of attainable knowledge. The human design, to which it is the function of the Royal Society to contribute, is laid as low, he says, as the profoundest depths of nature, and reaches as high as the uppermost story of the universe, extends to all the varieties of the great world, and aims at the benefit of universal mankind. Such a work can only proceed slowly, by insensible degrees. It is an undertaking wherein all the generations of men are concerned, and our own age can hope to do little more than to remove useless rubbish, lay in materials, and put things in order for the building. Quote, we must seek and gather, observe and examine, and lay up in bank for the ages that come after. Close quote. These lines on the vastness of the work suggest to the reader that a vast future will be needed for its accomplishment. Glanville does not dwell on this, but he implies it. He is evidently unembarrassed by the theological considerations which weighed so heavily on Hakewill. He does not trouble himself with the question whether Antichrist has still to appear. The difference in general outlook between these two clergymen is an indication how the world had traveled in the course of forty years. Another point in Glanville's little book deserves attention. He takes into his prospect the inhabitants of the transatlantic world. They, too, are to share in the benefits which shall result from the subjugation of nature. Quote, by the gaining that mighty continent and the numerous fruitful isles beyond the Atlantic, we have obtained a larger field of nature, and have thereby an advantage for more phenomena, and more helps both for knowledge and for life, which tis very like that future ages will make better use of to such purposes than those hitherto have done, and that science also may at last travel into those parts, and enrich Peru with a more precious treasure than that of its golden mines, is not improbable. Close quote. Spratt, the Bishop of Rochester, in his interesting History of the Royal Society, so sensible and liberal, published shortly before Glanville's book, also contemplates the extension of science over the world. Speaking of the prospect of future discoveries, he thinks it will partly depend on the enlargement of the field of Western civilization, quote, if this mechanic genius which now prevails in these parts of Christendom shall happen to spread wide amongst ourselves and other civil nations, or if by some good fate it shall pass farther on to other countries that were yet never fully civilized. 
this then being imagined that there may some lucky tide of civility flow into those lands which are yet salvage then will a double improvement thence arise both in respect of ourselves and them for even the present skilful parts of mankind will be thereby made more skilful and the other will not only increase those arts which we shall bestow upon them but will also venture on new searches themselves Close quote. he expects much from the new converts on the ground that nations which have been taught have proved more capable than their teachers appealing to the case of the greeks who outdid their eastern masters and to that of the peoples of modern europe who received their light from the romans but have quote, well nigh doubled the ancient stock of trades delivered to their keeping Close quote. five the establishment of the royal society in sixteen sixty and the academy of sciences in sixteen sixty six made physical science fashionable in london and paris macaulay in his characteristic way describes how quote, dreams of perfect forms of government made way for dreams of wings with which men were to fly from the tower to the abbey and of double-keeled ships which were never to founder in the fiercest storm all classes were hurried along by the prevailing sentiment cavalier and roundhead churchman and puritan were for once allied divines jurists statesmen nobles princes swelled the triumph of the baconian philosophy the seeds sown by bacon had at last begun to ripen and full credit was given to him by those who founded and acclaimed the royal society the ode which cooley addressed to that institution might have been entitled an ode in honor of bacon or still better for the poet seized the essential point of bacon's labors a hymn on the liberation of the human mind from the yoke of authority bacon has broke that scarcrow deity dryden himself in the annus mirabilis had turned aside from his subject the defeat of the dutch and england's mastery of the seas to pay a compliment to the society and to prophesy man's mastery of the universe Quote, instructed ships shall sail to rich commerce by which remotest regions are allied which makes one city of the universe where some may gain and all may be supplied then we upon our globe's last verge shall go and view the ocean leaning on the sky from thence our rolling neighbors we shall know and on the lunar world securely pry Close quote. men did not look far into the future they did not dream of what the world might be a thousand or ten thousand years hence they seem to have expected quick results even spratt thinks that the absolute perfection of the true philosophy is not far off seeing that this first great and necessary preparation for its coming the institution of scientific cooperation has been accomplished superficial and transient though the popular enthusiasm was it was a sign that an age of intellectual optimism had begun in which the science of nature would play a leading role End of section seven.